This podcast is brought to you by Brixton Hill Studios, South London's premier music studios for storage, rehearsal and recording. Find rooms with top quality backline from £30 at BrixtonHillStudios.com. That's BrixtonHillStudios.com. Hello, welcome to The Natural Selection, where this week's theme is extremes. listeners uh welcome back we are the natural selection definitely a class uh, maybe a family and in no particular order we have nick how do you do and naomi hello and uh me other nick um back for another week so uh how are you guys doing you had a nice you had a nice time since we've been here last yeah it feels like uh it's been both no time and all the time in the world yeah, yeah i agree feels like it's been a while yeah, I mean, it's weird how time flies. Uh, I guess you guys have been busy? Yeah, pretty busy. Just working. Yeah, mm. just working. Uh, found any interesting life forms while you're working? Mm, no. Got <laughs> 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 a bit of slight on your colleagues there, <laughs> yeah. Mary. Yeah. Oh. Um, I've been intrigued lately by the squirrel population outside my window. Go um, on. Which is much more interesting than reading in my room when I have to do work. Um, but the squirrels are going crazy this time of year. I've seen them hanging off of the tops of like 20, 20 foot trees, just dangling by their back feet. It's like the cir- squirrel circus out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I got the bejesus scared out of me by a squirrel recently. So I live in a flat, so there's big bins. It's not like we have our own personal bins. You have to take your, your rubbish out to the bins. Um, and a very crafty squirrel has chewed a hole in the lid of this giant dumpster style bin um and i went to grab the bin to open it and at that point the squirrel decided this was the perfect time to jump out of the hole of the bin i was holding onto and across like into the tree above me um i made a really manly noise though <laughs> so it's fine and then uh yeah proceeded to chuck my rubbish away and then live off that adrenaline for about four days was the noise something like oh <laughs> I would say even more manly than that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're probably getting closer. Um, I think all the squirrels in the area are probably intimidated by by the reaction I had. I don't think they'd be messing about when I've got rubbish again. Definitely mm. not. Yeah, Definitely I never not. thought as a grown man that squirrels in bins would be a problem I had. But uh, this, this one very much was. At my university, the squirrels had a reputation on campus for being bloodthirsty fiends. And they would wait, die in waiting inside the trash cans, the rubbish bins. And anytime you went up to go put something in them, they would lurch out at you like a monster from the night. Very scary. So trained from an early age um, to avoid bins with possible squirrel Squirrel bins. Stay yeah. safe out there, guys. This is a public service warning. Check your bins for squirrels. Yeah. Right. Um, and don't put nuts in your bins because that will only encourage them. That's mm. what they say. Eat your nuts. Don't throw them out. Um, should we get started with the news? Yeah, sounds good. So we've been trawling through the news this week to find, uh, yeah, natural world related stuff. So has anyone found anything interesting? Yeah, actually, um, I have an article I'd like to bring to the table. Go on. Um, you may have heard, uh, of different researchers finding 
frozen mammoths, frozen mastodons, um, where they're sort of, they have living, not living tissue, but sort of not just bones preserved, um, like in most fossil remains. Um, but recently, a team of scientists based in Japan, an international team of scientists based in Japan, has successfully implanted frozen mammoth cells into living mouse egg cells. Um, and while they weren't able to get the cells to replicate, to, to split apart and reproduce, they were able to cause them to, they sort of showed signs of metabolic activity, which is, um, I think, the closest to Jurassic Park we've been yet. Yeah, scary, kind of. Maybe. Uh, what are the implications for this? Well, I think that really, like most with most science, I think that the implication is a lot more work needs to be done. Um, but I think that this does sort of imply that Okay, let's get a little philosophical here for a minute, if you'll bear with me. But I think that this sort of opens up again the question of how willing are we to explore playing some sort of uh, a role beyond that of what we consider traditionally human, um, especially in the sort of the scientific world, in bringing back the dead, if you will, by sort of recreating an extinct lineage, which is what sort of we think of as the end of death, or like when everything has died in a species, then it's over. But if we can bring that back, if it's not the same individuals, but it's an interesting philosophical question, I think, and one that we don't really consider in the modern scientific world. Yeah, I suppose our more natural role is helping animals go extinct. So this would be a, a big change from that, in a way. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting, too, to think about the animals that are going extinct now. I think that, they're all, that most of them are large and need a lot of space, and that if we were to bring something back, like a mammoth, that uh, it may not have a lot of habitat to live in. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Where would we put it? What would be the benefit, I suppose? Yeah. A lot of fur. It doesn't have any natural habitat anymore, really. Does it? Yeah, because it, it liked sparse woodland, a bit like the tiger. Sort of on the edge of a steppe environment. Okay. Mm. Like, yeah, tundra, kind of. Mm -hmm. Fair, because, yeah, that was what shrunk the... Because when did the last mammoth die? I think that there was a population of mammoths on an island off the coast of Siberia mm. that died out around 4,000 years ago. So that's pretty recent. That's very much in the realms of humanity. Yeah. Mm. That's after the Great Pyramids were built, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So that's quite a strange thought that, yeah, there were humans very much interacting with these into quite what would be considered modern times. Um, would you bring one back, given the choice, Nick? No, and I think for the reasons that I've just mentioned, um, I think that if we were t if we were able to bring anything back, we should focus on species that we know would be able to survive uh, without a lot of resources to sort of keep them alive, um, because that's sort of the concern right now. Is if something dies net because it doesn't have any space or resources, what's the point of bringing one back if it won't be able to, you know, get a foothold? Mm. What would you bring back? Definitely some sort of horrible, horrible disease. Some sort of mosquito or something. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think it might be interesting to think about ancient flowers, ancient plants. Um, see what sort of early plants look like. How they grow now. Maybe an interesting thought. Something you'd bring back, Naomi? Well, it, it is interesting because my article this week is actually about an ancient fossil. So I could bring this ancient fossil back. Um, so this fossil was found uh, from the time of the dinosaurs. 
And um, it, they called it was so strange um, that they're calling it the platypus of the crab world. Um, so basically, its newly discovered creature was called Cal- Calacamera perplexa, which means perpe- perplexing, beautiful chimera. And it had a hodgepodge of body parts. Um, so it basically had the mouth of a shrimp, the claws of a modern frog crab, the shell of a lobster, and the paddle-like appendages of a sea scorpion. Um, and then if it was the size of a human, it would have had football-sized football ball-sized eyes. Um, how big was it? Um, a quarter, like the coin. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about a quarter of a human. I was like, that is enormous. <laughs> the size of a quarter. Yeah, I feel like because I didn't say it in an American accent that it, it came off confusing. <laughs> but um, yeah. Is that like a 10p? Between yeah. a 10p and a 50p. Yeah. Okay, so they're quite cheap. <laughs> That's good. So where were they from? Um, so these fossils were found in the Andes Mountains, um, but they've also been found in Wyoming and Morocco. Um, so given such far apart places, they think that they probably had quite um, a, like, wide variety of habitats and environments so so how are they adapted to live in the mountains um so these mountains used to be under the sea yeah okay yeah fair enough it doesn't say specifically what kind of habit they would have had like within the ocean but i think it was kind of a varied habitat they need big eyes when it's dark yeah yeah that's much i know do you know if they w- lived at the bottom of the ocean or if they lived in the water column? Um, it doesn't say specifically, but they were predators, so they probably were kind of in the water column. Yeah. Cool. Um, that sounds amazingly weird. I can't even imagine what it looks like. Uh, what would I have to Google to see it? Yeah, so if you Google the name Calachimera perplexa, you should be able to find an illustration of what they suspected that it might have looked like. That's kind of cool, an mm-hmm. illustrator of deceased oddities. How perplexing. Mm, indeed. Um, cool. Well, um, that again brings me to my news, which uh, you guys make me feel like I've got the filthiest mind. I did I did find an article that was about the imminent death of loads of penguins, and I deli- deliberately didn't choose it because I thought, it's about a lot of death. I reckon Nick's going to talk about that one. Um, but you surprised me with quite an optimistic, um, yeah, life-bringing I missed my opportunity to bring everyone down today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I deliberately didn't pick that. Instead, I've uh, found an article which, um, yeah, this this paper, which seems to suggest that uh, primates with more showy features have smaller testicles. Uh, Now, we're primates, so I don't know what implications that has for us. But it's essentially the idea of um, the expense that primates putting into sort of like showy features, such as like very, very red faces or um, or like I think they phrase it as showy ornaments. The energy that goes into that means they have smaller testicles. So while these ornaments might lead them to having more mates, uh, it means it's they're less likely um, to produce enough sperm to mate successfully with every single one. Nick, I feel like sociologists studying midlife crises have known this for generations. <laughs> the showier the accoutrement, the smaller the... I was wondering what your French for a penis was. <laughs> Venus. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I would. Ag- I, I mean, there is that sort of thing that yeah, people in Ferraris and all these very you know, if they if they're trying too hard, it's usually an indication. Um, I would say that um, usually people who do that, um, they're probably not surrounded by more women, unlike the primate world, 
where um, yeah, these sort of features are very very successful in creating quite a good good harem for these um, for these males. Interestingly, uh, it seemed to say that that canines uh, didn't didn't actually um, count as this. So canines, a large canine can often be a really good indicator for a female that this is a, this is a good mate. That didn't seem to have an effect. But um, the one things that we would we would sort of see as superfluous um, s- seem to, which is kind of a weird thought that yeah, they're selecting for these traits even though they won't actually help them mate, mm. which is odd to think. That's extreme. Um, it does make me wonder as well about what innate things. They like, talk about red, and humans go quite red quite often. But um, yeah, what showy ornaments that humans have that we don't quite realise. So, Nick, uh, in the primates or in other animals, is there anything else that sort of we can compare this to that was that we know that we sort of know? Um, yeah, I guess I suppose one thing I don't want to give too much away because of this week's theme, so we might get back onto this. Um, but yeah, sexual selection is kind of a weird thing on where you might select for things which may not be useful. Oh, mm. mysterious, mysterious. Um, I suppose that does bring us to the end of the news. Uh, so yeah, join us after this little interlude. Well, we're starting to talk about extremes. 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 Welcome back. So we're now going to talk about this week's theme, which is extremes, chosen by Naomi. Mm. Um, so extreme, quite broad. What what drew you to the theme of extremes, Naomi? Are you quite an extreme person? I don't think so, to be honest. Um, I think actually I was sort of inspired by last week's theme because um, we mentioned some things like the highest flying bird. Um, and so I... Um, for those of you just tuning in, last week's theme was the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so we talked about, so it's sort of, when I was researching that, I sort of ended up looking at some things that are the extreme, most extreme version of something. So um, that kind of inspired me to think of this week's theme. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, it's quite broad. I quite enjoyed researching this one. Um, obviously, it was easy to find the most extreme animal, which is humans, because we're the only ones that skateboard. So that was that settled that radical. Wait, pause. Dogs skateboard sometimes. Oh my god, absolutely right. And it, they're way better <laughs> than us because they're cute. They also surf. I've seen surfing dogs. Yeah. <laughs> there is a dog that holds a skateboarding world record, and it's not just for dogs. Oh, there's a dog that holds the record for skating through the longest like human leg tunnel oh. uh, in the world, and it, a dog holds that record of like I think it's like 100 meters of human leg tunnels. Incredible. Yeah. The nature is truly miraculous. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, Nick, when when we tasked you with researching extremes, where did you where did you first look? Well, obviously, I went to the grossest possible places to find my extremes. Uh, so I have a few exciting so the books in your bedroom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have some nasty facts for you guys today. Oh, um, I'm just gonna. We'll start off with an appetite wetter. Um, I would like to tell you about my favorite bird. Which is the turkey vulture. Okay. Aura cathartes. Can I just stop you there? Because a bit like turkey bacon, I'm confused. Is this a turkey or a vulture? Well, it's a vulture. Okay. It doesn't really look like a turkey, except that it has a bald head in the same way that a turkey uh, okay. does. Um, they live all across the western United States. They're different than the species of vultures that live in the Eurasian continent. 
Um, but in North America, they're fully black and they have a bald sort of pinkish head and they are they migrate west in the springtime. So where I grew up in Arizona, they're often the first sort of bird that you'd see as the changing of the seasons come in the spring. The spot of the vulture sort of soaring in the sky is the first time of spring. Um, but they look really like, I mean, truly, they look like omens of death. Uh, they're these big black things that fly on the wind, hence their genus name, Aura, which means the wind. Um, they barely flap. They just ride thermals and sort of circle up and up and up, looking, scanning the horizon for uh, dead things. They use their eyes, not their nose, to find dead things. So once they've found a dead carcass out in the desert somewhere, they'll fly out, settle down. Usually one flying down will draw the attention of others, and they'll end up in a, a few, maybe half a dozen to a dozen all around the dead carcass. And they'll eat it, and eat it, and eat it, and eat it, until they've gorged themselves, like I gorged myself on pizza and cookies before we came to the studio. And It was impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and they w sometimes they'll eat so much they can't fly. Um, they, they get too heavy to be I able to take I can relate off. to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't feel like I could fly right now. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike turkey vultures, we don't have defense mechanism for that, except, I guess, generally, like, to chuck... Flight marshals? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're Never eaten that much, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, the turkey vulture, on the other hand, has a pretty awesome defense strategy. If any predators or scavengers come and they can't take off because they are too full, they'll vomit all over the predator um, so that they simultaneously disgorge themselves, lighten up their load, and then also gross out anyone who's thinking about eating them. Um, so they'll vomit all over them and then fly away. But that's not the only disgusting thing that turkey vultures do. Turkey vultures are all black. And while this is helpful in the cooler times of the year, you can often see them on telephone poles with their wings spread out wide in the morning sun, like warming themselves up. Uh, they get very hot in the summer, and when they get too hot, they'll poop all over themselves. And they have, like most birds, a cloaca that doesn't separate between their urine and their feces like, they, like most mammals do. So it just comes out in a runny stream that then cools down their legs. I feel like if I were to do that, if anything, it would make me feel a lot warmer. <laughs> <laughs> the evaporative process cools them down quite well. Oh. It's pretty efficient. Are you? Is, would you like to hear some more nasty facts? Because I have a little bit more. I feel like yes, uh, we sort of didn't dwell on that. Because it's sort of like, yeah, well, I always think of like our excretions being warmer. I wouldn't want any... Ex that on me. so like you know because i scuba Sorry, dive nick are you saying that you'd like to talk more about the birds that poop themselves yes great right. so <laughs> great. yeah because i scuba dive and they quite often say in scuba diving circles they don't want us to think we're weirdos if it's very very cold but sometimes it is that it's it's occasionally helpful to to wee in your wetsuit um and this this warm liquid that you um expel will stay there and help keep you warm and I was told that this was like totally fine, but when I did it, everyone like looked to be funny, and they they sort of intimated that I probably should have waited till we got in the water. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, of course, they were looking at you, thinking, "This idiot, he doesn't understand evaporation." <laughs> <laughs> All the vultures were tutting. <laughs> um, yeah, that's 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 an interesting method, I suppose. Yeah, because it's not an immediate source of water where they live; is they're in a desert. No, and they can't sweat either. You know, that's quite rare, isn't it? Humans sweat, and we're quite good at it, but a lot of animals don't. Dogs don't sweat, mm. or at least very little. Mm. That's why they pant. I um, wonder if they pant as well. 
You know, I'm not sure. They definitely can't sweat, though, because if they did, their wings would get all soggy. (laughs) Sweaty. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Yeah, so you tell me you have more gross facts about these things. Yeah, so the the defense mechanism of vomiting all over something that's trying to eat them, uh, they're not the only one to do that. Uh, There are some some sea animals, sea cucumbers, that when attacked will avert their stomachs and it's not quite in the same way of vomiting as we do it, but they'll take their whole stomach out I, I just through right. their throat. I like that you clarified that. I knew I wasn't doing it. <laughs> <laughs> like, you've drunk way too much <laughs> if you're inverting your stomach. So the stomach aversion process is basically like taking a pocket and flipping it inside out through the mouth. Okay. <laughs> um, what good does that do? Well, in the case of the sea cucumber, suddenly there's a bilious and billowy uh, membrane that surrounds the whole animal that really whatever's trying to eat them doesn't really want to get near. But sea cucumbers aren't the only animals that evert their stomachs. Sea stars, or as some people call them, starfish, will evert their stomachs to feed. Um, So one of their favorite foods are clams, but clams can close themselves up and they're pretty difficult to eat for a starfish. But eventually, clams get tired, and they have to open up just a tiny crack. And that crack is enough for a starfish's stomach to enter and start secreting digestive enzymes inside the clam. And then they can suck it out once it's been digested. Pretty horrible. Um, Can I tell you my fact about starfish? Oh, please. Or sea stars. Mm -hmm. They are the largest order... Of animals that live in the sea that have no freshwater representatives. Oh. oh. What order is echinoderms? Echinoderms. Is that an order? I want to say an order. The problem with science is you can't even say group of animals because group is a section. <laughs> <laughs> and I can never remember which one it is. But yeah, echinoderms are the largest uh, section of sea life that doesn't have any representatives in freshwater. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Mm. Um, I like that, yeah, you said that they mentioned that they're, they're, they're called sea stars now, which is because, yeah, they didn't want them confused with fish, because they're very much not fish, are they? They're also very much not stars. Yeah, <laughs> they missed that. <laughs> Nor are they the sea. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like everything in the sea, we just call a fish, right? Yeah. It's a phylum. It's a phylum. Thank you. Sorry. That's quite all right. Um, but yeah, so yeah, you get cuttlefish, hagfish, shellfish that there's, you know, Starfish eat. None of them are fish, are they? If we're talking about... Are fish even fish? Isn't that what you think? No, there's, not there's that fish. famous podcast. <laughs> there's yeah. no such thing as a fish. Yeah. Nigga's looking at us as if we're mental. But no, that idea of what is a fish is that thing is a shark a fish and a salmon a fish. But the difference between a shark and a salmon is much greater than us between us and a lizard. But we wouldn't say us and lizards are the same. But we are both fish. <laughs> 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 if we're talking about... A sort of evolutionary group. Yeah, because like fish is like everything that didn't like get out, right? <laughs> yeah, that's how we group them. They're not they're not monophyletic, are they? No. Yeah. So interesting, but uh, yeah, extreme. That was extremely informative and extremely gross. Thank you. Um, what did extreme make you think of, gnomes? Yeah, so I thought about a, a few different things. So, um, like I mentioned in why I thought of this, we thought thought of same things like. The biggest animal, um, the smallest Which is? animal, and the blue whale. Okay, a little bit of a quiz here. Yeah. Uh, closest wins. Uh, weight of the blue whale, Naomi. 
Six tons. Six tons. Twenty-five tons. Twenty-five tons. Oh. You are closer. Um, with a maximum recorded weight of 173 tons. Oh, oh. so very wrong. Um, and I will accept this answer in feet or metric because of where you two are from. Um, length of the blue whale. How long is the school bus? 30 feet. Uh, there's a maximum length of 13.7 meters or 45 feet for a school bus. Oh, no, okay. So 45 times three is... So you think it's three school buses long? Yeah. Okay, so that would be uh, 45 feet, so 150 feet? No. 140 yes. feet-ish. Yes. Okay. That's like a lot of... Feet. Yeah, that's a lot of stories. I don't know, I'm going to say like 30 or 40 feet. Cause it's like 30 or 40 meet- feet? Yeah. Oh, I thought you'd go meters. Uh, it's about 30 meters or 98 feet. 98, 98 feet. That's yeah. big. Wow. So two school buses. Two school buses, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a metric that me and Naomi don't really understand. Mm. <laughs> You could look up how long a London bus is. I only know things um, compared to Wales, the country, because that's what they compare <laughs> everything to. They're like, it's about twice the size of Wales. Bigger than a bread box, smaller than Wales. <laughs> yes. <laughs> about 48 ocelots. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're, they're massive. So what did you say, 98 feet? 98 feet. Yeah. I've heard yeah. that you can, a human could swim through its aorta comfortably. Yeah. Um, their tongue is the size of a blue whale. Uh, no, it's not. That's, that's <laughs> weird. It's really weird. There's like another one coming out of Exception. So 2.7 London buses. 2.7 London buses. Do you know what I've got from that? Is that uh, London buses shorter than American school buses? Yeah. Now we know. Yeah, they're absolutely staggeringly huge. Inconceivably large animals. And mm. quite often the time, we don't know where they go. There's mm. a museum in Edinburgh. They definitely don't go there. That they don't go. <laughs> <laughs> We've waited. We've <laughs> looked. There's also a amusement park in Florida that they don't visit. <laughs> um, no, they, there's a museum in Edinburgh that has a blue whale jaw, a mandible of the blue whale, yeah. and inside of it, a taxidermied elephant. That's um, cool. It fully fits inside, and you can really see the size difference. It's amazing. Yeah, I feel like my mind just can't get around the like hugeness of it mm-hmm. like even when you say all those size things i'm like yeah okay big but i just like i'm i don't think i'm fully getting it you know yeah um so that was extremely large uh what other extremely sized things did you find um so i was also looking up the largest plant oh, and yeah. when i found that it actually isn't just one plant it's a colony a oh, colony yeah so it is a, a pando it's a cologne Clonal colony of an individual quaking aspen. Oh. Yeah. What What does that mean? So I think basically they all have, so they seem like they're more than one tree, but they all have interconnected root systems. So they are all one organism, I guess. So most of it is underground where we can't see sort of like connecting and then all of it's above are actually the same tree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it appears appears to be. Um, Oh. Yeah. In... The Rocky Mountains in the western United States, there are aspens. And often in the fall, big patches of them on the hillside will change all on the same, like in the same couple of days from green to orange. And I always thought it was strange that like there was, they could see borders between the different groups. Mm. It must be because they're the same colony. Interesting. I'm not not sure how it works. I don't know much about, about trees and... Colonies of trees. But I yeah, can't forget plants be. exist, so I'm with you on that. <laughs> um, you do live in London. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's 
incredible. You never think of, yeah, under the ground. I never really think of the un- the root system of plants anyway because you're so used to the visible part. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of strange to think. I did look that, um, yeah, the, the, the colony is estimated to weigh uh, 6 million kilograms. Wow. That's a lot more than a blue whale. Yeah, mm. there's the, the blue whales are, uh, so the short tons and long tons, which I don't really understand the difference, but the short tons was 190 tons for blue whales. This is 6,600 short tons. Holy mackerel. That, that, that was like too much for me to comprehend, I think. Yeah, it's one of those numbers that's a, that's a bit annoying. Um, on top of that, not only are they extremely large, there's something else that's extreme about them. Oh, interesting. Their age. Go on. Oh. They are extremely old, this colony. They've estimated to be 80,000 years old, this organism. Whoa. Wow. That's pretty old. I don't know what was mm-hmm. happening 80,000 years ago. Do you I say, to, is it rude to say to a plant, you're getting a little long of tooth? <laughs> or would you say lung of a leaf? <laughs> um, I wonder if you can still count their rings. I th- I can't comprehend how it would grow. Like whether they all grow at once or like yeah, what's going? Yeah. I can't get my head around this. I imagine all. it's probably well. I don't know from my understanding of like with plants that have runners, there'd be one plant and then they'd like r- have a runner and then a new plant would grow. So they're probably kind of start at one point and then branch out from that. I know that but an individual aspen, like a like aspen trunk. Only lives about a hundred years. Okay. So, the the what we're looking at is an eighty thousand years old. Right. Just like that, it has been around for that. Like, yeah. my hair is about thirty years old, but none of the hair on my head is. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I yeah. think that aspens are primary success, primary growth. So they're sort of like the the first things that grow in a forest, and then once they can grow, once they grow. Trees that need shade, like pine trees, will grow in their shade. Mm. And then as they die, the pine trees grow into their full growth for about 300 more years. Oh, cool. Um, there's also, sadly, the pando, this big, big, um, big colony, uh, is thought to be dying, perhaps. Uh, there's been no recorded growth for the last 30 to 40 years. Oh. Um, so this 80,000-year-old organism is, yeah, uh, stopped growing. Uh, they don't they don't fully know why, but they, they're citing that human interference is the primary cause. Okay. Um, which, yeah, is, is quite sad. Um, but, yeah, I suppose that is much, much bigger than I thought. That must be the biggest living thing on Earth. Um, although I had heard that there might be a bigger fungus. So there's a super colony of fungus that might be even bigger. Um, super colony. Oh. So I've just done the math, and it looks like if we stopped growing for the same proportion of our lifespan, 80 years or so, that the that Pando has stopped growing, that would be about 10 days for us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yay. So maybe they'll bounce back. Hope so. Yeah. So maybe like it's like chilled or like, this is fine, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> um. I do know that there is a rival for the largest organism because while they, by area, are enormous, there's something that rivals it. Um, and it's also in America. We do have the biggest things. Yeah, everything's <laughs> bigger, but it's not in Texas. Um, so this, even though by area, it's enormous um, and it, it rivals um, Pando for the amount of biomass, it still only weighs 605 tons. 
because uh, this is a fungus. It's a honey fungus, the species Armillaria ostiae, uh, and it's in the Blue Mountains in eastern Oregon, Oregon, and it spans uh, 2,200 acres, or about nine square kilometers. That, I want to say, my like the scientist in me wants to say, wow, cool, but the me in me wants to say, that's a totally a great, great premise for a sci-fi movie. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's extremely big. So we've been leaning on extremely large things. A uh, little peek behind the curtain, guys. We actually had quite a uh, quite an intense argument about what would be the uh, the smallest living animal. We all had uh, different ideas. Uh, Nick, what did you what did you think it was? My guess was it was my strong guess. Yeah. Was uh, some sort of rotifer. Uh, sort of pond pond dwelling animal. Yeah. What about you, Nose? What was you going yeah, for? Yeah, mine mine was something maybe like a tardigrade. That's See, what I was thinking. I thought I'd read that it was a a tiny wasp that was actually so small it actually injects its um eggs into single celled organisms and was smaller than them. Um. So, listeners, you'd be pleased to know that we were all wrong. <laughs> um, this is quite a diplomatic revelation. <laughs> I feel like if one of us was wrong, this would have been. Well, one of us was right. This would have been unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it's the animals I spoke about last week. Uh, Cetenophores, the ones that um, don't have an anus um, that we, at least we could find until last week. Um, but yeah, they uh, they are absolutely tiny. So all of these are, are ridiculously small. They're all micrometers, uh, tiny things. Um, so uh, rotifers, they're actually preyed on by tardigrades to give you an idea of how small mm. that little fight is. So yeah, it turns out the smallest uh, is an obligatory parasitic uh, cynodarian uh, from the... Um, it's one of those things I struggle to pronounce, uh, a species of Mixozoa, I think it is, and they never grow larger than 20 micrometers. Uh, one of the smallest species is no more than 8.5 micrometers long. Um, to give you an idea, I think, Naomi, you said that a human cell was about 40 micrometers, human skin cell. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's about a, under a quarter the size of a human skin cell is a living animal with organs. Insane. That's insane. Nature, miraculous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but then par- parasites have to be small. So wasps are often parasites. We often think of wasps as things that ruin our picnics. Um, mm. But that's why they're such a small one, because they tend to lay their eggs in things. Um, this one just happened to choose um, yeah, a, a single-celled organism. Mm-hmm. We, we, again, neglected uh, plants. Do you know the smallest flowering plant? No. Is it something arctic? No? I don't Is it know. something from the arctic? Is it epiphytic? Oh, maybe, yeah. I wish I knew what epiphytic meant. Does it grow on other plants? I don't think so. I think, it, well, I think it's a type it of duckweed. No. Duckweed? It's a type of duckweed called uh, wolfia. Oh. And they, fully grown, measure um, about uh, 300 micrometers to 600 micrometers. These are flowers. Um, and reach a mass of just 150 micrograms. Wow. Oh, yeah, there's, you can get, yeah, like thousands on your fingers. You just skim them through the water. They just look like little algal stuff, but they're they're actually full flowers, which is amazing. Where do they grow? Uh, in the water. They're duckweed, which is like a oh. free floating um, uh, sort of species. They don't have roots or anything. Um, so that's very 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 small. Um, so I was looking at things that weren't just big or small. I was looking at something with extreme <laughs> in their name. Okay. <laughs> I was looking at extremophiles. Dun, dun, dun. Are you familiar with these? Yes, a little bit. A little bit? They like really crazy environments. They're like radical. They grow on skateboards. 
Um, <laughs> only the kinds of skateboards ridden by dogs with sunglasses on. Yes. <laughs> um, so extremophile comes from extremis, meaning extreme. You'll like that Greek derivation, Nick. I know you like a Wait, straightforward one. brain is a pretzel there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and philia, meaning love. So it loves extreme environments. So there are several environments that we would consider way too extreme for life. So, um, for example, they, they quite often bacteria. Bacteria are really, really good at this. And I think um, RK are also really, really good at this. So um, they were still being viable after being heated to temperatures of 420 degrees centigrade. And most of the time we would think of enzymes or proteins being denatured of above about 40 degrees. And yeah, this has gone much, much higher than that and is still totally fine. Um, so yeah, there's, there's bacteria and, and things that can go to minus 20, uh, which again, shouldn't make sense because we need a lot of water. Um, mm. uh, and they, yeah, they're, they're able to sort of go back to minus 20 and just grow unimpeded without sort of ice penetrating their cells. I can yeah. barely survive under 15 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do know, uh, was it a fish that they found high levels of alcohol in their blood in a cold environment, which mm. was stopping their blood freezing? Ah, but yeah, there are some Arctic fish that have like a uh, a um, chemical that's basically like an antifreeze, so that it stops their blood freezing. Is it halibut? Um, I think it's like a lot of different Arctic. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, hot and cold aren't the only extreme environments that the world lives in. You get acid and alkali. So uh, there are organisms that live in uh, pHs or even negative pHs, and pH is down to one, which is yeah stronger than. Yeah, acids, which would horrifically burn us. You get alkaline systems or soda lakes where they can survive in pHs over 11. Mm. Um, so these are things that would, that would vastly, vastly kill us. Um, do you know of any other sort of extreme environments that things live in? Mm, I think there are brine shrimp that live in extremely saline environments. That's extremely s- extreme salt? Yeah, extreme salt. Yeah. Do you know what? I... <laughs> I feel like, and I don't think I'm alone in this, that like heat and that and cold is cool and like extremely salty (laughs) doesn't sound that impressive. Well, you said extremely alkaline and it's a similar sort of environment. Your body can't cope. You need a special adaptations for your body. Do you know, I was was sad about that as well because extremely acidic, again, sounds cool. (laughs) Oh my God, it's so acidic. But like extremely alkaline (laughs) um, is, yeah, somewhat disappointing measure of extremity it will melt your skin off but it doesn't sound cool yeah and that's what really we're an auditory medium yeah Um, yeah and the salt will just like make you lose all of your water from your cells the pasta recipe that i cooked from last night told me to salt my boiling water until it tasted like the sea (laughs) i rarely taste my boiling water (laughs) yeah i didn't um I notice it tastes of pain. <laughs> I think that's the perfect environment, though, for some of these extremophiles. Oh, yeah. Salty boiling water. Yeah. So what you're saying, it's dangerous to boil pasta. Yeah, well, you could be mm. growing bacteria. Yeah, goodness me. So mm. Italy, watch out. So what do some of these extremophiles say, like the bacteria you mentioned, what do they like live on with them if they're the only things that can live in these environments? Yeah, I imagine that the whatever there is to eat, the, uh, the benefit is are the only things there to eat it because uh, nothing can dip in. Like, yeah, uh, something that 121, there are no animals that could sort of like go in and scoop up that food. It means there's nothing to prey on them as well, except maybe other uh, um, extremophiles. Um, yeah, so they've sort of got the pickings or whatever they want. There's obviously something in there drawing them. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't eat it. Pasta. 
So a lot of these uh, superlatives that we've been talking about are the result of adaptations for to take in, to advantage of new environments. Yeah. The very small things with the very uh, the sort of things that can survive in really extreme environments. Are there any uh, ad- non-adaptive processes that have produced extreme things? So things that don't provide a sort of uh, survival at a, a benefit, but maybe some sort of like runaway selective process? Yeah, very interesting that you should mention that um, because there is, um, so there's this um, idea in sexual selection. So there's often these traits um, that become really extreme um, and it's really hard to um, figure out why they may become this way. Um, and there is a theory. Um, and so Fisher, um, a statistician, came up with the idea um, that it's it may really result that it may result from an arbitrary choice. Say, for example, um, female birds might choose males that have longer tails. Um, and then those males... Can I ask, do they always choose uh, traits that rhyme? <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, um, female birds may choose a trait such as a long tail. Um, in and males. In, in males. Um, and then they'll choose... They'll mate with the males that have the longest tails. And then those males will have... Those Sex with whales? <laughs> those males will have um, offspring that have longer tails. But on top of that, they'll al- also produce females offspring that have a preference for longer tails. Um, so it will eventually spread that way that they'll get longer and longer tails. Um, and it can eventually grow to, the fa- to where having a long tail becomes detrimental. So that they'll go to the point where the bird can almost not survive anymore because they have such a long tail. Um, so it's quite hard to prove, but they have been able to prove in the long-tailed widow bird that females do actually choose males based on long tails. And they did experiments where they transplanted um, longer tails onto some males. And <laughs> I'm sorry that it rhymes. They transplanted longer tails onto some males and they cut shorter tails um, into some males. And they proved that the males that had the transplanted longest tail um, got the most successful matings. So you could um, say the males with the short tails fails. Yes, okay. they do. Yeah, um, yeah. So it is—it's an interesting um, hypothesis, but it, it could um, be a reason why some of these traits get chosen for. It could just begin as an arbitrary trait. So it could also um, show some sort of fitness benefit, but it, it may also not. Do you think it could become exaggerated enough that some males have tails as long as whales? Or could could it could yeah it okay. could. Mm. It feels like that could almost lead to speciation because that idea of you're only selecting for what you already have. So the long-tailed mm-hmm. males um, will mate with the females that like the long-tailed males, yeah. but the short-tailed males will mate with the females that like the short-tailed uh, males. Yeah. And then you end up with uh, yeah, a lineage where they don't want to mate with each other. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, so it is, it is somewhat of a thought experiment in that you know it's hard to prove and um, there's definitely other things that are impacting on this, but it is an interesting that's the theory on why the these sort of sexual selection takes place. Yeah, there there is some al- alternative theories. Um there's one called Zahavi's handicap principle. Um and it implies that uh this long this trait develops because um it actually does impact on on fitness. Um and because these males can survive with this say this long tail and they've managed to survive this long that it's showing how good and how amazing their genes are because they can basically survive with like one arm tied behind their back. Um, so it's it's quite hard to prove, but they do think that it may be provable in peacocks. Go on. Yeah, um, there there's been some tests done where they have um, I can't remember the actual experiment where they've done some experiments on peacocks, 
um, and they've been able to um, suggest that it does show a fitness benefit and there is actual the fitter males do have the longer tails mm. um, and it's linked to fitness in that way i wonder because the females don't get longer tails no so i wonder if yeah the f- males pass on that fitness to the females that aren't burdened then mm. yeah it's the dent hypothesis <laughs> well that, uh, i think that brings us an end to all our extreme facts so um i guess that leads us on to the last section which is uh, normally about a conservation project. We've actually got a bit of a treat for you because this week we're going to talk um, more generally. Um, it does involve a bit of conservation, but more generally about a very special species of bird. So we'll be back in a moment to talk about that. So welcome back. I uh, hope you enjoyed our talk on extremes. Um, but now we're in for a bit of a treat because Naomi, what are we going to talk about? Um, I'm going to discuss a recent paper that came out. This is actually very close to my heart uh, because I was involved with the team that did the research on this. Um, so the paper was published on the 24th of April um, in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaeal Society. Um, and I was lucky enough to get to work um, as part of the team that uh, published this paper. Um, so it was about, it described two new bird species uh, from the Wakatobi Island, where it's an island chain off southeast Sulawesi, which is in Indonesia. I'm glad you qualified that. Yeah. You're like, oh, southeast Sulawesi. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was getting confused with my, um, my uh, Walake- Walakea island chains there. Um, um, yeah. So the, the white eyes are an incredible group of birds, which are among the fastest evolving vertebrates. Um, so they've been coined with the term great speciators. Ah, yeah. the great speciators. Mm. When Professor Marples and Dr. Kelly, who were part of this research group, uh, visited the Wakatobi Islands in 2003, um, they noted that the lemon-bellied white eye uh, was distinctly different from the ones on the mainland. Um, so it was much yellower and smaller in, co- um, in size. Um, and they also found a mystery white eye um, that they hadn't really um, been able, had found before on the northernmost Wakatobi Island, uh, which is called Wangi Wangi. When they found it, mm-hmm. uh, did it look like one of those silhouettes with the question marks inside of it, like you see on Pokemon before the commercial break? <laughs> I suspect it did, yes. Um, does this mystery one now have a name? Um, yes, so they're now calling it the Wangi Wangi White Eye. Um, and they believe that it's actually um, 3,000 kilometers from its uh, nearest uh, relative. Um, so yeah, this it's not related to I the other. I'm jealous of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it's actually not related to the other um, species, which is very interesting. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. So did they hypothesize how it got there? Um, no, not 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 um not as such. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. That's mm. another paper. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to keep it dripping. Got to yeah. keep that money <laughs> rolling in. Um, of all these sort of like animals that exist, why are these so fast evolving? Do you think? Um, so yeah, I think there's like a couple of different um, yeah, there's there's several different theories. So um, these actually have different uh, bird songs. So the Wakatobi white eye, which is what they're calling the um, mm-hmm. species that they found uh, on on the other islands, that's different to the lemon bellied white eye. Um, so it's actually got a different song to the lemon bellied white eye, and they suspect that's quite important in mating behavior. So I think when they got separated by islands, that they were able to like be very like um flexible if they will have a wider ecological niche on mm. the island and yeah. they can show more in very very variance within the population in bird song yeah so i think i think that they're I'm, I'm not sure what it is that drives their ability to diversify quickly but they do seem to be able to um 
like separate quite quickly so that their bird song is different and then they wouldn't be compatible to mate with each other. Okay, that's interesting. Mm. So they, it's almost like their evolution is sort of twin with their ability to evolve their song very quickly. Mm. And and they also have developed other differences in say body size as well. So okay. yeah. That's kind of interesting looking at birds that sort of speciate because there's also very famous examples, especially the most famous like example is probably Darwin's finches where he would look at speciated birds um, and the end results of what can happen when the speciation takes place. I think there's Hawaiian honey creepers are often, um, often cited. So that idea of actually finding somewhere where this is in process um, and trying to understand speciation uh, doing that is kind of exciting and to see, to see like this in, uh, yeah, in action is, is amazing. Glad you agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Extreme. <laughs> so, Naomi, this is really, uh, this is a really interesting project, and I, I'm assuming it involves a team of researchers. But mm. I think that we would all like to hear more about what your involvement was and, and sort of your experience with the process. Oh yeah. So, um, I worked as a research assistant for six months with Trinity College Dublin. Um, in the zoology department. Um, so during this time, I worked um, mostly in the molecular lab. Um, so what my work involved was um, working with um, these feather samples that the team had collected uh, from uh, Sulawesi and the Wakatobi Islands and uh, cutting up and preparing the feather samples and then extracting the DNA from these samples. Wow. Um, and then using PCR to... Um, uh, to amplify these DNA samples and then uh, send them away for sequencing. Do they use, I don't know if you'll know the answer mm -hmm. to this, do they use feathers because they're particularly good for extracting DNA or just because they will be dropped off without harming the birds sort of thing? Um, so it's a combination of things. So feathers, um, because they are easier to transport back um, to Ireland, they're easier to keep in the field. Um, technically, blood would probably be the best way to actually get DNA and DNA that would um, be the easiest to extract. But... Yeah, it's, it's more likely to harm the bird. Um, it can be more difficult to get permits. Um, it's also you need to have fridges and stuff in field sites, so it's just a little bit more difficult, whereas feathers, um, although the DNA isn't necessarily as high quality, um, it's easier um, and more stable. I imagine that, given that it's hard sometimes to find a human vein, finding a little bird vein to draw mm -hmm. blood from can be a little difficult in the field. Yeah. The feathers yeah. also really light. So yeah, yeah shipping costs. Yeah, very little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think the you know, the, the the DNA remains quite stable and it's really easy to um carry with you and stuff. So I think it it's just the most convenient way to to get the DNA. Cool. And I think yeah, it can be so there was some difficulties in that extracting DNA from some of the samples. So say some of the samples, particularly older ones, um, because the project did go back quite a few years. Um it was a little bit different, more difficult from some older samples. Um, and then, so there's also, um, you need a certain amount of feather tips to extract enough DNA as well. Thank you so much. That's really interesting. Mm. Did you get Thank to you. go uh, anywhere interesting? No, I stayed in the lab. <laughs> the molecular lab at Trinity yeah, College. Exactly. That's quite interesting. That was quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Hmm. So, um, do you think this could have any impact for the birds themselves? Yeah, so this work is quite important, particularly for the Wangi Wangi Waitai. Um, it's only found um, in this tiny island, 155 kilometers squared, um, and it's a high-density human population, um, so urgent action is likely to be needed in order to protect this area. Um, so this could be really important for naming these islands 
um, as an endemic bird area and for offering protection for the birds that are endemic and unique to this area. Wow, interesting. Mm. Particularly given like that these animals um, and there's several other bird species that are endemic on these islands. So there, there could be a wide variety of other species that have been left uncovered for many years that also need protection as well. Okay. That's amazing that, yeah, the work you're doing could have an impact uh, uh, on the other side of the world. It's uh, pretty cool. Thank you. One step at a time. Thanks for looking out for us and the birds. Mostly really the, the birds. birds. <laughs> <laughs> Very little concern for me or your health, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> it's really exciting, Naomi, to be able to hear personal narrative from someone who's done work in, in the sort of scientific practice because we talk in our episodes about conservation and ecological change and speciation and that sort of thing. Um, but to see it sort of like to have the practical experience with that is really exciting. And it's really special that you get to share that with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Oh, no problem. Um, that does bring us to the end of the show. Uh, we have run out of time, I'm afraid. Uh, but we'll be back soon. Um, and our next theme will be fire. Fire! Which should be pretty cool. Um, for some reason, whenever I say words this week, one or both of them repeat them, uh, which is a bit weird. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, next time our theme will be fire. I really hope you join us for that. Um, but for tonight, it is way past our bedtimes. So uh, we're going to say goodbye from Nick. Goodbye from Nick. Uh, goodbye from Naomi. Bye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. You have been listening to The Natural Selection. Find us at thenaturalselection.net or on Twitter at thenatselect. We are sponsored by Brixton and Studios with all music by Nick Howiam. Polos.